Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 12 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And today we're interviewing Dr. Peter Bruckner. And I ran up to him in the PHC conference in 2019 and said, will you be on my podcast? He was so funny on the stage. He was really, really funny Um, when he came on with his Liverpool scarf and really winding everyone up who wasn't a Liverpool fan. So you've met him before, haven't you? Yes, I was fortunate enough to meet him the previous year in 2018 at the Low Carb Breckenridge conference that I attended. So that was in Colorado in the USA. And we were at the one of the conference social functions. And obviously being a fellow Aussie, I sort of, well, similar to you, had a bit of a fangirl moment and um, sort of gravitated toward the only other Aussie in the room. Hmm. So Obviously, knowing of his high-profile sports medicine doctor um, position that he had with the Australian cricket team, you know, there was obviously, um, you know, wanting to sort of rub up against a bit of stargazing there. So, (laughs) yeah. And you're right. I mean, he's such a great speaker and he has that, uh, you know, Aussie larrikin sense of humour as well. So, um, yeah, it was a real great privilege to be able to um, interview him today. Yeah. So let me tell you a bit more about Peter. Um, yeah, obviously, you, being the you do being the Aussie in the room. Yeah, you do it in your Aussie accent. Dr. Peter Bruckner has been awarded a Order of Australia Medal for his services to sports medicine. He is the specialist sports and exercise physician whose most recent position has been with the Australian cricket team from 2012 to 2017. He is a founding partner of the Olympic Park Sports Medicine Centre in Melbourne, Victoria and Professor of Sports Medicine at La Trobe University. He is the founding executive member of the Australasian College of Sports Physicians, where he served two terms as president and played a key role in establishing sports medicine as a medical specialty in Australia. He is the co-author of the widely used textbook, Clinical Sports Medicine, and has been team physician for professional football clubs, as well as national athletics, swimming, soccer, men's hockey teams at Olympic and Commonwealth Games levels. Peter was the team doctor for the Socceroos at the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, and then he subsequently became the head of sports medicine and sports science at Liverpool Football Club in the UK. He is the co-founder of the public health campaign Sugar by Half, and is committed to challenge the improvement of the nation's health with improved diet and increased physical activity. 
His most recent book, A Fat Lot of Good, was published in May 2018. Welcome, Peter, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. It's fabulous to be here. And our first question to all our guests is, where in the world are you? Well, I'm in Melbourne, Australia, uh, which is uh, currently in lockdown uh, because we've had a second spike of uh, of coronavirus and uh, very frustrating. Not nearly as bad as it is elsewhere, but uh, we're locked down pretty strictly. So um, it's a highlight of my day is uh, is doing this podcast. It's the only uh, (laughs) communication I have with the outside world. It's very good. Excellent. It must be really late for you. What time is it? Uh, no, not too bad. 7.30 in the evening. And okay. uh, just uh, just had a nice uh, nice dinner. We've got our uh, my daughter and husband and two young grandchildren living with us at the moment while they renovate. So that uh, makes life more than interesting, I can assure you. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, things are pretty crazy here. And you're just going into your winter. Do you think the spike in COVID has been because of the winter months? Look, it's probably got something to do with it. But we've had a few, uh, yeah, a few sort of uh, public health disasters with uh, visitors from overseas and so on that weren't quarantined properly and uh, and so on. So, yeah, there's this reasons why it's why it's happened, but it's just still and we'll shut it down again. I'm sure uh, we'll get our numbers right down again as we did last time. But uh, it's just frustrating because you know, everyone was sort of coming out of the the lockdown and feeling good and positive, and we were actually able to go out to restaurants and coffee shops and. Uh, and play sport and things, and then all of a sudden we're back to where we were, which is the worst, you know, the worst case, really. Um, yeah. It almost would be better if we hadn't come out of it in the first place, but anyway. Yeah, it does make it seem like, I mean, we're just coming out now, so we don't know what's going to happen, but it does make it seem like all that time would have been wasted if it just goes back to where we were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, interestingly, Melbourne is the only city in Australia currently that's, that's having problems. Everyone else is pretty much clear of it, but... Uh, yeah, we just had a few a few muck-ups and uh, we probably went stricter than anyone else to start with, which is ironic, really. But anyway, we'll be right. It's only six weeks. Okay, it gives you plenty, yeah, it gives you plenty of time to um, to focus on, obviously, you've got your charity, um, your your health promotion, health education, uh, Sugar by Health activities. Maybe you'd like to start by telling us a little bit about your, your story and um, how you became involved in low-carb. Oh well, that uh, I'll tell it as uh, succinctly as I can. Um, so, but back in uh, in 2012, I was living in uh, Liverpool, England, uh, working for the football club there. And if you'd asked me then, you know, how was I? Was I healthy? You know, uh, how are you, doc? Sort of thing. I'd have said, yeah, I'm good. You know, I'm I'm, I'm healthy. I'm uh, uh, I'm pretty good. The reality is I probably wasn't quite as good as I thought. For a start, I had a strong family history of type 2 diabetes. Uh, my father had developed type 2 diabetes at exactly the I just turned 60. So he'd developed type 2 diabetes at that age, and I definitely didn't want to go down that track. So I was pretty conscious of, uh, of that. I was uh, overweight, borderline obese. My BMI was 30. And like many sort of middle-aged men, and I consider 60 middle-aged. I used to think it was old, but now I think it's middle-aged. Um, like many middle-aged men, I'd probably put on half a kilogram a year for 30 years. You know, slowly getting a little bit thicker around the around the girth, as they say, to the point where my kids are starting to poke me in the belly and say, you know, come on, Dad, what about it? And I'd shrug my shoulders and say, well, hang on, you know, I'm doing everything right. I'm on a low-fat diet. I'm up. I exercise regularly. You know, I do everything right. 
So I certainly, yeah, I was definitely overweight. And I'd also um, had some blood tests that showed I wasn't, I'd had a fatty liver, for instance, for about 10 years. Uh, every blood test I'd had for 10 years had come back saying, you know, liver function test consistent with fatty liver. Like a typical doctor, I totally ignored that and um, decided that uh, I didn't really understand what a fatty liver was and I figured I was on a low-fat diet and I'd be fine. But um, So I ignored that and I had high triglycerides and, uh, and so on. So, you know, the reality was I wasn't as, uh, as healthy as I thought. So around that time, uh, 2012, I'd had a long-standing friendship with Tim Noakes, uh, the uh, South African sports scientist. He and I had uh, you know, crossed paths many times over the years with a, a mutual passion for cricket and rugby and, uh, and exercise science. And, um, and he's someone I'd enormously admired, his intellect, and uh, you know, probably about the smartest guy I've ever come across. And uh, I started uh, reading some stuff that he was uh, writing that uh, he was challenging this idea that uh, fat was the problem. And he was suggesting that carbohydrates were the problems. And he'd uh, had issues himself. He was overweight. He was unhealthy. He'd changed his diet. He'd developed type 2 diabetes. He'd changed his diet and resolved a lot of these issues. And it really made me sort of sit up and think, whoa, boy, that's, you know, Tim's finally, uh, you know, gone loopy. I mean, uh, he, uh, he's had a few crazy ideas in the past, which have always been proven correct. And But this time, really, he's, he's totally lost it. But it was enough to make me, you know, inquisitive anyway. So... Um, I went and bought Gary Torbs' book, uh, Good Calories, Bad Calories, or the, or the Diet Delusion, I think as it was called in the, in the UK. And, um, and this, was, this book just blew me away. I just could not believe what I was reading. Not so much the, the fact that, you know, carbs versus fat, but more the history of, of the politics of how the, the low-fat movement had won out over the low-carb movement back in the, you know, in the sort of 50s, 60s and 70s and Yadkin versus Keys and, and so on. And... And I remember, you know, I used to put the book down at night and, and uh, I'd say, no, no, this couldn't be right. Like, we couldn't have got this wrong. You know, the whole of Western society is on mm. a low-fat diet, for, mm. which we'd always assume, I'd always assume that there was good science for, behind it and there was good reasons for it. And here's someone saying, you know, there was absolutely no science behind it. It was all about politics and money and US agriculture and so on. So it was really, I found it a really disturbing book, but fascinating. Mm. And after that, I was, I was into it. You know, I read everything I could get my hands on, books, articles, uh, uh, the works, and just dived into it. And uh, the more I read, the more disturbed I felt and, and the more convinced I was that maybe they were onto something. So uh, as a scientist, you know, I thought, well, it's time to do, uh, to do an experiment, do some research. But as a scientist, I also know that, you know, research with an N equals one is a waste of time except when the one is you, in which case it becomes very important. So I decided it was time for an N equals one experiment where I would uh, put myself on a low carb, healthy fat diet for three months, do all my bloods on day one, do all my bloods on, uh, on at the end of the three months and, uh, and see what happened. So I did. I, uh, I uh, got a blood test done, got everything uh, sorted and then embarked on a low-carb, healthy-fat diet. So I stopped eating, you know, soft drinks, uh, not that I ate that much anyway, but, you know, rice, pasta, potatoes, bread, uh, cereal, all the things that, uh, you know, I'd probably been living off for, for 30 years. And so I went back to uh, eating the way that probably my parents or grandparents had eaten, you know, went to, to a real food sort of diet with meat and fish and uh, eggs, green vegetables, dairy, you know, I went went back to butter from, threw away the margarine and went back to butter and stopped eating all this low-fat dairy and went back to full-fat dairy. 
And uh, the only fruit I had was berries, had nuts, seeds, lots of olive oil, stopped cooking in vegetable oils and so on. So I did that for three months. The first thing I noticed was uh, almost from day one is I stopped being hungry. So instead of, uh, you know, having my cereal for breakfast at eight o'clock and then getting to about 10.30 thinking, God, you know, it's lunchtime soon <laughs> and happy to, uh, happy to have a snack, I'd, uh, I'd have my, you know, bacon and eggs and avocado or something for breakfast and I wouldn't be hungry all day. Mm. And uh, so I went from eating three meals and three snacks a day to probably eating two meals a day with an odd uh, handful of nuts or something in the middle if I got, to, if I got hungry. And then, uh, then I started to lose weight. Uh, so every week I'd get on the scales and I'd, I'd lose weight. You know, you lose the first week, you think, oh, yeah, that's just you know, mm. a bit of water and so on. And water weight. I just yeah. kept losing weight every week. I just lost uh, more and more weight. And then I started to feel a whole lot more energetic. Um, you know, I didn't have that sort of early afternoon sleepiness that, uh, that I often have. I slept better. I stopped snoring. Um, you know, all these things happened. My exercise tolerance improved. I remember being on the treadmill about after about six weeks thinking I could run forever. I'd certainly never had that feeling uh, before. And I just felt mentally I was much sharper and more, uh, more you know, cognitively uh, alert. So a lot of these things you know, happened. And at the end of the three months, uh, I'd lost 13 kilograms in 13 weeks um, without even trying, really. Trying. You know, without, never being hungry and uh, eating as much as I wanted to. Uh, and the more fat I ate, the more fat that I lost, which was sort of just bizarre that was the hardest thing to get your head around the fact that you know mm. you've been drummed into us all these years that you know low fat was good low fat was good and then all of a sudden you're having all this fat which is quite difficult to uh to deal with but anyway i did and um and then i got my bloods done and uh my fatty liver had completely resolved uh, my liver function tests were absolutely normal Fantastic. after three uh, three months and i'd had that for 10 years uh, my triglycerides came down by half my HDL went up, my insulin levels went down. You know, so many uh, positive things happened. Uh, there was one negative though, I had to get a new wardrobe because uh, none of my clothes fitted me. I was uh, dropped two sizes in uh, trousers and, uh, and so on. But I figured that was a small price to pay. So I guess having you know, done all that reading and then having had my own experience, that was enough to really uh, convince me that this was, uh, this was important. And I guess I became a, a sort of passionate advocate, if you like, of... Uh, mm. I just started to uh, started to talk uh, talk to people, started to give give uh, lectures, start writing stuff, and uh, yeah, then just got more and more involved in the sort of the low carb movement, if you like. And then uh, about uh, three years ago, we were chatting away and uh, and and talking about the frustrations we were having and the fact that everyone just seemed confused about what to eat. You know, there was paleo and Atkins and low carb and Mediterranean and and. You know, we thought we'd, we knew what to eat for 30 years and all of a sudden there's all these different uh, diets and, and, you know, people were complaining they were very confused. So I made this sort of uh, semi-serious uh, suggestion that, well, maybe we should just dumb it down and just focus on one one thing and one thing at a time. And, and the obvious thing was sugar because that's mm. the one thing that everyone agreed on. Even the dieticians agree on, uh, on sugar. They don't agree on much. And... Uh, so, you know, everyone said, oh, great idea, great idea. And so I was sort of uh, got forced into, um, so I went around the country to talking to all the, uh, all the players, if you like, in the, in the diet game and, and what did they think of this idea of, uh, of starting a sugar campaign and, uh, and so on. And everyone thought it was a great idea. So I came back home and thought, well, I guess I have to do it now. So that's how Sugar by Half uh, was born. And um, I always think that... Uh, any campaign should have a, a target. So we thought, well, let's target 
halving the sugar. So the average Australian has about 16 teaspoons of added sugar a day. So we figured, uh, you know, half of that is somewhere near, you know, the uh, the World Health Organization recommendation of no more than six. Um, so yeah, that was that was our uh, our aim. So we set up a not for profit campaign, and uh, we've been slowly growing. Uh, we've been getting some funding. It's been hard to get funding, but uh, we've got uh, we've got some very good supporters, and we've got an education program that we've rolled out in the schools. We've got a corporate program that's uh, ready to go. We've got a, a sporting club uh, program. And we're looking at uh, at a diabetes uh, program at the moment. So uh, there's lots happening there, and um, it's been very exciting. We've got a great group of people to work with, and uh, yeah. And in the middle of all that, uh, I wrote a book. I got uh, I was approached by by Penguin, you know, the, one of the big publishers, and uh, they said, uh, you know, would you be interested in writing a book? And and my response initially, I must admit, was, uh, well, you know. The world, what the world really doesn't need is another diet book. I mean, there's, uh, there's no shortage of diet books around. And uh, they convinced me that there were very few by doctors and none by Australian doctors. And uh, they uh, convinced me that was a good way to get my message across. So uh, I wrote a book. We called it A Fat Lot of Good. Um, and it's uh, published in Australia. It's sort of difficult to get if you're not in Australia. But um, it's done really well. And, uh, you know, we've, mm-hmm. uh, it's been on the bestseller list for all the first few weeks. And, uh, yeah, it's it's done well so and you get a lot of good feedback from that and uh you know just this morning i got an email from a very eminent uh, lawyer in in melbourne uh telling me how to change his life and uh you know he'd lost weight and uh, all his metabolic uh, results had got back to normal and uh you know changed his life so you know when people do that it's very uh very rewarding so, mm, mm, but, it's such yeah, a so that's really mm. a very uh long-winded uh, <laughs> story how i got into all this no, but it's good because, like, certainly um, having a copy, a signed copy of your book, um, and reading it, certainly it's it's interesting. Obviously, you know, having met you a couple of times, and um, yeah, your your voice and your persona really lifts from the pages. So it's well worth um, it's well worth a read. So um, yeah, it's and it's very accessible. So the language is very accessible. It's not obviously as um, highfalutin in scientific terms as um gary's you know first book was so um yeah it's really good no you can't compete with with gary tobbs and, and nina tyshall's books you know they're just both amazing books i think you know that i have the utmost mm. admiration for both of them the amount of work and research that went into those books and mine is just much more of a practical sort of a, mm-hmm. you know, guide a, a, so to mm. tell my story and, and what i've learned right. and uh, and the messages i want to get across but being in the sports, I suppose, in the sports science as, as a sports physician, a very eminent sports physician, how has that been to approach a particular group, um, you, know, you know, sports athletes, you know, trying to get this message across, you know, when they're told to carb up, you know, and having all the goos from, you know, exactly what, um, yeah, Tim Noakes's research was, you know, and, and really pushing about the carb loading before, before a performance and being able to have that explosive energy. So you're really not only battling that particular, I suppose, dogma, but you're obviously very entrenched in a particular practice as well for, for athletes. Yeah, that, it's been a really interesting time in, uh, in sport uh, with diet. I mean, you know, sports nutrition was very boring for about 30 years. It was just all about carbs and carbs and carbs and, and Gatorade and Powerade and, uh, <laughs> and that was it. And, uh, and over the last uh, few, few years now, um, there's been people have been challenging that, uh, that idea, the same as they've been uh, challenging the, you know, the low-fat idea in, in general sort of uh, medicine. 
And there's a lot of controversy, a lot of very heated controversy among the sports nutritionists about, uh, and unfortunately, you know, people get very polarized. You know, you're either a low carber or, or a you know, high carber. And, and of course, as usual, the truth is, uh, is somewhere in the, in the middle. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I'm not as obsessed about the whole you know, low carb thing in, in athletics or in, in sport as I am in, in the general population. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's obviously incredibly important uh, for metabolic health in, uh, in our general population. In sport, it's, a, it's not quite as clear. There are certainly plenty of uh, athletes, uh, both at a recreational level and at an elite, an elite level, who uh, have adopted a low-carb approach, uh, particularly endurance and particularly ultra-endurance athletes. They seem to do very well on a low-carb diet where they're basically fueled primarily by fats, by ketone bodies, which uh, are quite an efficient uh, fuel. And the great advantage of them is that you don't have to keep replenishing your supply because you've got plenty of ketone bodies on board. So you don't need to be having the constant drinks and gels and snacks during a marathon or a, or a triathlon or a, you know Ironman or whatever. So <clears throat> there's been a lot of uh, a lot of people taking up that the uh, the, the low carb diet among endurance athletes among. Uh, higher intensity athletes is not as clear mm. and, and certainly it seems that the majority of high intensity athletes need some sort of carbohydrates uh, for that that high intensity uh, stuff it's very individual it's very variable it's like in, in the rest of the world I mean there's no one diet for everyone and there's no one diet for athletes and and everyone has a sort of an ideal amount of carbs that they that they need but I don't think Anyone needs the amount of carbs that athletes were uh, were consuming, uh, you know, a few years ago with all their massive amounts of carbohydrates, and and that worries me too. I mean, I think we've had a whole generation of young people, you know, serious athletes, who've had massive amounts of sugars and, and carbohydrates for 10, 15, 20 years, and I really worry about their long term, uh, the long term effects mm. on their on their health and uh, so on. But um, yeah, I think there's a balance now that uh, and that certainly. You know, in football clubs, for instance, I know that there's, there's, a, there's a train low, uh, compete high sort of concept where most of the week during their training, they'll be on low carbs and, and, uh, mm. and mobilising their fats and working off their fats. And then on game day, they might have uh, some extra carbs on board just to, uh, to top up. So the theory being that you get the best mm. of both worlds, the best of That's, carbs. And, uh, mm. But it's very complex and uh, I think it's very individual. But there's, there's been, been a, a definite switch. Yeah, I would guess if sorry, Go I guess if these sports people are have become fat burners over time, they can easily tap into the fat when they need to. So having those extra carbs on sporting event times, they can use those up quickly and then revert back to burning fat. Yeah, that's a, that's a theory. I think that works uh, for some people. It really is very variable. Uh, you know, I have uh, elite athletes, footballers who are completely low carb and are fine and don't seem to need any top-ups of carbs. I have endurance athletes who are fine most of the time, uh, but if they, say, cyclists, for instance, they need to sprint or they need to climb or something, they feel as though they need some carbs on board as an extra sort of a top-up. So very individual. I think it's a matter of playing around with what's best to best for you it's getting that balance between what's right for your general health and what's right for your sport and uh yeah a combination of the two is probably about right yeah 
Yeah. So it's very nuanced. You know, it's nuanced and it's a yeah, tailored I think approach, it is. like I said. There's this concept of personalised nutrition, I think, is, is the buzz term these days. And uh, I know the sports dietitians are big on big on that. And uh, in tailoring your uh, your carbohydrate and, and fat intake to your training demands. So if you've got a relatively mm-hmm. low training day, you uh, can manage on uh, on fats. If you have a high intensity training day, you might need some carbs. So uh, it's not just a matter of the same thing every day. Mm-hmm. That's fine. So um, obviously you've had a very long association with the Liverpool Football Club. So congratulations on your FA Cup win this year. Is that right? uh, league, league win, yeah. yeah. League showing win. Your, showing your ignorance, Louise, but they'll forgive you for that. You're <laughs> Australian, sorry, of I'm course, sorry. so that's all right. Yeah, I know. No, um, notice, she, knows, notice, she knows more than I do. <laughs> notice how I said football and not soccer. Yeah. So oh, that's good. Anyway. That's good. Yeah, um, really good. Yeah, but yeah. I did read, or oh, I did read, or I did see Jurgen, uh, the coach yes. or the manager. So he's not a coach; yeah. he's a manager. Um, right. Jurgen mentioned that he eats no carbohydrates. He's low carb. Yes, there was quite a funny incident where he was presented with a uh, a huge pizza, I think it was, or something like that, and uh, and said, you know, thanks very much, but uh, I won't be an idiot because I'm uh, I'm low carb. And uh, and certainly they have a nutritionist there um, who is uh, is pretty much low carb, um, and certainly real food. Anyway, they eat a very healthy uh, healthy diet and uh, with some carbs, but uh, the emphasis is very much on real food rather than processed food. And, uh, and I think mm. that's what it boils down to, really. I mean, uh, we can get a bit obsessed about you know carbs and fats and so on, but if you just stick to the real food concept rather than processed food, then uh, then really you can't go wrong. Mm. And uh, but I wondered if you had any influence in in you know. Oh uh, well, I'd like to the... say that uh, you know it's all due to my uh, the, the legacy I Your left legacy. Uh, some years ago. But uh, <laughs> you know, the other argument is that they seem to have done very well ever since I left. So uh, you know I can't really <laughs> do yeah, too much. That's which way you look at it. But no, it's great for the Liverpool fans and so on. I mean, they're they're long suffering. It's been 30 years since they won. And uh, the trouble is that there's a whole generation who grew up with Liverpool winning nearly every year. And then all of a sudden they haven't won for 30 years. So you can imagine how uh, how much joy there is in the, uh, in the city. It's a Mm. wonderful city, Liverpool. I, I, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed my, uh, my years there and uh, love the city. Any city has two obsessions of football and the Beatles. Can't be a bad, uh, can't be a bad city the way I look at it. And uh, yeah, I love my time there. I, I was sort of, a bit, bit sort of, uh, well, I wasn't really wildly enthusiastic about the, the prospect of living in Liverpool because I lived in England, you know, 30 or 40 years ago and uh, that's when Liverpool was very much a downtrodden sort of place. They had the Toxteth riots and all that sort of stuff. And then, but uh, I found it to be a delightful city, great people and, um, and the city, they've done it up really well and, uh, yeah, I love my time there. It was good. How, how long were you there in total? Uh, three, three or four years. Yeah, so uh, nearly four years. Yeah, it was terrific. Really good. Did you did you embrace obviously um, the the great foods the UK sort of obviously the delicacies of clotted cream but maybe not oh no 2012 <laughs> you you discovered obviously low carb yeah, well, when I was there so, yeah, during my time there so mm-hmm. I I uh, I did have some of the delights of uh, of uh, the English. Uh, culinary world but um not renowned for their uh but now look i mean <laughs> the interesting thing is there were lots of nice restaurants in uh, in liverpool really nice restaurants so uh there was no shortage of uh of good places to go and eat but uh, i had a great time there really enjoyed it mm-hmm. yeah i so remember I you coming to... in on stage with your liverpool yeah, scarf liverpool and scarf. <laughs> <up> everybody 
Yeah. Oh, well, so, you know, you've got to put on a bit of a show. <laughs> yeah. So this was obviously for the listeners, this was at the um, the Public Health uh, Collaboration Conference last year. And um, so Peter yeah. was the opening speaker and obviously revved up the crowd. <laughs> I think they just bring me on to laugh at me. That's all right. <laughs> that's fine. Um, I did have another question, and that was really about, um, so in the sports world, you were sort of comparing and contrasting, obviously, coming at it from the perhaps the traditional approach to the low-carb approach. But because you are obviously a medical doctor as a sports physician um, specialist, what and how has that changed for you, as you mentioned, about that cognitive dissonance between, you know, your light bulb moment back in 2012 for the way that you practice medicine now? Yeah, it absolutely uh, has changed the way I, uh, I do things. And I'm constantly getting into arguments with my medical colleagues who are uh, very resistant to, to this idea. There's something about medicine. I don't know what it is. I think we're, we're very reluctant to embrace new ideas and, and we're just, you know, probably got some advantages. You know, we want to be a bit sceptical. But, you know, you tend to sort of believe everything you were taught in medical school and, and believe it for the rest of your life. And um, Someone uh, once said that uh, 50% of everything you learn in medical school turns out to be wrong. You just have to work out which 50%. Mm. And uh, obviously a significant part of that 50%, I think, was, was nutrition. Not that we were ever taught any uh, nutrition in medical school. I didn't have a single lecture in my six years of medicine on, on nutrition, a bit on biochemistry, but nothing on, on nutrition. And that's part of the problem is that uh, doctors don't know anything about nutrition. And uh, people assume they do. You know, they assume that doctors are experts on everything, but they don't know anything about nutrition. They don't know anything about exercise. And um, what we're taught is uh, is to treat illness with, with medications and surgery. And that's what we're good at. We know lots about medications. We know lots about surgery, but we don't know anything about the sort of lifestyle issues that are so important. And I was exactly the same. I mean, uh, you know, we, we were all tarred with the same brush, really. And, uh, and it was only, you know, a few years ago that I... But my eyes were opened, I guess, and now I've become very sceptical and cynical about lots of things in medicine and, uh, and become very passionate about the importance of, of not just diet, but also uh, exercise and sleep and, and stress and, uh, and sun and, uh, and so on. So it, it really has dramatically changed the way I, uh, I practice medicine. One of the other things is that, that a lot of what I see as a, as a sports medicine doctor is, uh, is related to inflammation. And, uh, you know, in, in both uh, inflammatory diseases such as arthritis, but also injuries, uh, you know, tendonitis and, uh, and so on, that, that's uh, associated with, with inflammation. And the standard treatment was always to put these people on drugs, anti-inflammatory drugs, uh, you know, getting more and more powerful as, uh, as you got more and more desperate. And one of the, the things that's really changed in, in the way I practice is that uh, my first line of management of all these people now is is uh, is diet and, and exercise and um, you know it's been shown quite clearly that by changing your diet you can dramatically reduce inflammation on uh, on one of my first uh, first trips after I finished at Liverpool I, I worked with the Australian cricket team for a few years and um, we went off to uh, to India in uh, in 2013 so this was just a few months after I'd, uh, I'd changed my diet and um, one of the players uh, 
was having problem had been having problems with his knee, and he'd had uh, a lot of issues really for two years. He'd had uh, knee problems virtually to the point where he'd had to stop playing, and he'd been to see every specialist, and he'd had uh, MRIs and arthroscopies and everything like that. And eventually, uh, they discovered that he had uh, what we call a seronegative arthritis, which is a, similar to rheumatoid arthritis. And uh, he was put on some very powerful medication, and uh, it sort of settled down to a to a certain extent. Uh, he was having uh, when I met him, he was having fortnightly injections of this uh, this medication, and he was at probably at about eighty percent of what he could uh, could do. He still couldn't train fully, but he was able to at least play and, uh, and obviously good enough to be in the Australian squad, although he wasn't actually in the team. And um, so, as I said, he was still having problems, and 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 in that fortnight uh, in between his injections he said to me that about day 10 of the fortnight his knee would start to ache and he'd know it was time for his next injection and uh, he'd have the injection then feel good for 10 days and then uh, and get sore again so he was a little bit overweight and um, he came to me and said uh, you know look I'm really impressed by how much weight you've lost and so on I'd like to uh, you know to give what you did a go for a few weeks and see if I can drop a few kilograms and I said sure yeah that'd be great not that India is really the easiest place to go on a low-carb diet. <laughs> to, uh, no rice, no naan, nothing like that. But anyway, um, and he did. He went uh, on a very strict low-carb, healthy-fat diet. And um, it's because well, we obviously eat together, all eat together, so I was able to observe what he was eating and I could uh, vouch for the fact that he was, uh, he was doing it very, very strictly. Anyway, uh, about three weeks afterwards, he came up to me and said, Doc, uh, I forgot to have my, uh, my injection last week. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I didn't have any pain in my knee, so I sort of forgot to have it. You know, should I have it now? And I said, well, no, why don't you? Uh, I pretended that was exactly what I expected. And, of course, yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, but um, I, I said, uh, no, why don't you wait and see what uh, what happened? By the way, this drug costs about $15,000 a year, uh, say £10,000 a year to, uh, to for the Australian taxpayer to pay subsidise these drugs. So it was a very, you know, powerful, uh, powerful drug. Anyway, to cut a long story short, he had no further problems with his, uh, with his knee. He was able to stop taking any drugs. And um, he'd, the only time he'd get flare-ups is when he would sort of uh, drop off his diet a little bit. And, uh, and, it, and so that really sort of opened my eyes to, the, to this issue of inflammation. And, you know, I've had a lot of success with, uh, with treating patients with, you know, osteoarthritis of the knee or, uh, or the hip or different uh, inflammatory conditions with a... Really, you know, a low-carb diet, which is really an anti-inflammatory diet. I mean, we know that there are certain foods like sugars and vegetable oils and so on that are inflammatory in nature, and there are certain foods that are anti-inflammatory. You know, the omega-3 uh, polyunsaturates, you know, the fish and, and fish oil and so on. So that's really one area that's that I've sort of combined, if you like, my in my sports medicine and my nutrition uh, to actually uh, help a lot of people that way. So I think that's a really uh, interesting area that we're exploring more. We've just done a little small research project here in uh, in Melbourne, looking at uh, an anti-inflammatory type diet in those with knee osteoarthritis, and we've had some pretty dramatic uh, effects on that, which we'll be publishing uh, shortly. So um, that's an area I want to explore uh, even more: the role of diet in inflammation and. We now know that you know a lot of diseases are due to low-grade chronic inflammation. I mean, even atherosclerosis is now thought to be uh, chronic inflammatory. There's some suggestion that that mental health uh, issues like depression, anxiety, might be uh, related to chronic inflammation. So it's a really a whole new world is open for us, and the the possibility of uh, of managing some of these conditions with uh, with nutrition. So very exciting. Mm. 
So I think for the most part, I mean, here in the UK, the paradigm is still you can just exercise to lose weight. Now, I think I personally don't believe that. How, how do you feel about it? Yeah, well, you can't outrun a bad diet, as they, as they say. And really, I think, don't get me wrong, I'm a huge advocate of exercise. But for weight loss, I think for most people, it's probably 80% diet, 20% exercise. It seems that keeping the weight off, exercise might play more of a role. But actually losing weight initially, it's nearly all diet. And, uh, you know, I have so many people I know who exercise and exercise and exercise and complain that they still can't lose weight. And they are, it's amazing how many regular exercises are overweight. And uh, it's partly because I think they can they think they can eat whatever they like as long as they're exercising. You know, and, you know I... I uh, remember many occasions where, you know, you might be in the pub and someone's had their, you know, their 20 pints of beer and, and their, uh, you know, uh, th- two large pizzas and they say to you, ah, oh, doc, it's all right, I'll run it off tomorrow. And, uh, you know, they should start running then and keep running for about 24 hours before they'll be able to run it off. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, lots of good reasons to exercise. There's a huge benefits of exercise, but weight loss is primarily diet. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Mm. Yeah. That's my thinking too. So you're mentioning about the um, the role of diet, I suppose, in inflammation. So, but can you tell us a bit more about, you know, there's obviously controversies about which diet. So depending on which which diet you would be necessarily prescribing, whether it's the, you know, the Scandinavian, whether it's the Mediterranean, whether it's a vegan, vegetarian, all of them would say, you know, they're all healthy, healthy with inverted commas. But, you know, do we actually know how the actual food components contribute to the to the inflammation, the role of, you know, reducing inflammation? Yeah, look, I mean, on the question of diets, I mean, there is, you know, there is no one diet. That's that's the problem. Everyone's looking for the right diet for every person. And there's no one diet for everyone. All of those diets are a vast improvement on your standard, you know, American diet or or a UK diet or whatever, which is, you know, highly processed, ultra-processed foods and a lot of uh, takeaway foods and uh, processed foods. So anything that, uh, you know, anything is improvement on that, if you like. And and I, you know, I, I hate getting into these sort of diet wars about, you know, as you say, you know, Mediterranean versus Scandinavian versus Atkins versus Paleo versus, you know, LCHF and so on. I mean, I think, you know, there are some general principles that uh, are common to all those those diets and are probably why they're successful. You know, one is is a reduction in sugar, and there's no doubt that sugar is extremely toxic, and sugar is everywhere. You know, it's not just the obvious, you know, two teaspoons of sugar in your coffee. There's uh, um, and soft drinks and so on that we're all sort of familiar with. But you know, things like fruit yeah. juices and sauces and uh, muesli bars and fruit yogurts and so on are just full of sugar and are pushed as, as sort of healthy foods. And uh, so I think, you know, anything that reduces sugar, if, if you know, if you're doing one step to improve your uh, your health, uh, sugar is, is probably the first of those. And then you've got, you know, process, refined carbohydrates, processed carbohydrates are, uh, are not great for you. Um, and, uh, uh, and then the third thing is, I believe, is is the vegetable oils, the, uh, the omega-6 polyunsaturated fats, you know. And, if you look at it, most processed foods are a combination of sugar, uh, vegetable oils, and, and probably grains. And that, that's the other issue that uh, that I'm uh, strong about is, is that for many people, 
they don't tolerate grains very well. And we've, you know, we've pushed grains and we've pushed fiber for, for years as a healthy uh, option. And um, I don't think for a lot of people that they tolerate. Uh, and, and the problem, the reason for that is, is, uh, is probably the, the type of wheat that we're, uh, that we're eating these days. It's very different from the wheat that our uh, grandparents ate. It's all been modified okay. so that it's a, a higher production from each, mm. uh, each plant. And um, uh, we're not, we don't tolerate that very well. So I think, you know, I don't like name diets or, or, you know, very specific diets. I believe that there is a right diet for everyone. There's a right amount of there's And it largely depends on, on your level of insulin resistance. You know, if you're, uh, if you tolerate carbohydrates, then, you know, sure, you can have some more carbohydrates. But if you're at the other end of the spectrum and that you're in highly insulin resistant, you're type 2 diabetic, you're morbidly obese, you've got metabolic syndrome, any of those factors, then you need to be on a, a pretty strict low-carbohydrate uh, diet. So uh, it really just depends where you are on that spectrum, I think. Hmm. Do you think this has some relation to why where people are getting fatter and sicker? I mean, we noticed over the last probably 40 years, there's a lot more prevalence of illness and obesity. What do you think yeah, is behind that? I think that? it's a huge issue in our societies. I mean, and it's, you know, the, the obesity rate is, is just steadily climbing every year. The diabetes rate is steadily climbing. And I don't think that's a coincidence that those two are rising in, in parallel. It's a massive problem. And, you know, we, we, we see someone who's overweight or they're diabetic and we want to blame the individual. It's not the individual's fault at all. You know, for a start, we've been giving the, the wrong advice for 40 years. You know, all the official advice is to be, you know, have as many carbs as you like and, and just long, as long as you keep your fat uh, intake down. And that's, you know, been cl- shown clearly to be wrong. This obsession with, uh, with fat and saturated fat in particular has, uh, has now been shown to be incorrect although there are lots of people still you know, hanging on to it uh, for dear life, and, uh, and this obsession with, uh, with, with carbohydrates. Uh, so, you know, there's a very good reason why we're, we're uh, getting fatter and sicker. So it's partly our fault as a, as a medical profession, as a, as a dietitian uh, and so on. We've been giving the wrong advice for a long time. And that advice, which we all thought was based on science, turns out to be, uh, to be quite fraudulent, really. Um, so that's partly it. And so it's not really the individual's fault. And, and really, you know, the, the way food is marketed and sold and, and promoted, you've, you know, it's, it's almost inevitable. It's, it's very difficult to, to avoid that. You know, everywhere you go, you see, uh, you see advertisements for, uh, for fast food, for, for junk food and so on. It's, uh, it's everywhere. It's cheap. It's tasty. You know, they've got lots of sugar and, and, uh, and, uh, uh, salt and so on in it to make it palatable so it's really you know it's very difficult so people shouldn't feel guilty about uh, about being overweight or diabetic or anything but they should acknowledge the fact that they've been uh, that they've been getting the wrong advice and, and you know they should be angry i mean uh, if i were if i were type 2 diabetic i'd, I'd be really angry at the uh, at the medical profession and and the uh, the diet profession for giving me the wrong advice for the last 40 years and uh, mm. if i had a good lawyer i'd, I'd mount a class action against the uh, the profession for uh, for misleading people for the last 40 years mm. yeah and everybody's they're... so entrenched in that belief that mm. it's really hard for just the general person that you meet on the street it's very hard for them to make 
to believe that they've been told it for so many years that it's really hard for people to make that switch yeah, absolutely. That's that's the hardest thing that uh, you know we've had it drummed into us that uh, that that fat is bad and that, that that you know carbohydrates are good. And and if someone's been telling you something for forty years and then some wacko comes along and says, "No, you're you're wrong," I mean, uh, of course, you know you're you're going to be resistant to that. And then there are also you know people whose whole careers have been based on that, and, and they're very reluctant to uh, to give up that idea straight away. I I, I understand that. You know, it's, it's difficult. I, I found it difficult. Um, um, but uh, and others uh, certainly do. So I don't, in a way, I don't blame the uh, the medical profession for some in some way in that uh, you know we've we've been told something and and we've you know been led to believe it and uh, and we're sticking to it. But um, yeah, we need to change. We need to change our ideas on uh, on what's healthy and what's not healthy because you know basically you've just got to look at the uh, at the figures to show that whatever we've been doing is not working. So, you know, if you had a business and your bottom line was getting worse every year for 40 years, you know, wouldn't you at some stage in that 40 years uh, say to yourself, well, hey, hang on a minute, maybe we're doing something wrong. Maybe we need to do something differently. Yeah. But no, despite the fact that we're getting fatter and sicker every year for 40 years, we continue along exactly the same dietary uh, regime and principles and guidelines as we have for 40 years. So, of course, we're going to get fatter and sicker. And we're going to continue to do that unless we change. Yeah. And everybody's different so one size doesn't fit all so just saying everybody should be low fat and high carb whilst it might work for some people there are going to be a huge proportion that it it doesn't suit exactly and 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 really that's often that's a matter of time as you know one becomes more insulin resistant over time so young people tend to tolerate carbs quite well uh, for a, a number of years and then gradually over time, and that's why we grad, we tend to be sort of fitter and healthier in our younger years. And as we get older, as, as I did, you gradually put on weight and become less and less uh, healthy as you become more and more resistant to, uh, to insulin. And uh, it's that insulin resistance that, uh, that is the big issue. Yeah. I think what you were describing about the, um, the way that food, obviously the flavours and the salt and the crunch and the sweetness um, is called the Dorito effect. Um, I think there's a book on the Dorito effect. It's about the hyperpalatability and the way that food scientists have engineered people to be able to, obviously it's that dopamine response that the food hyperpalatability, you know, sends these sorts of neurotransmitters that keeps us eating, uh, you know, those packets of Doritos. Um, You know, it's like the Pringles as well as with the marketing, you know, once you pop, you can't stop. It's those sorts of things that um, lure you into obviously eating those sugary, salty, crunchy foods, which are just obviously so delicious, but obviously not very good for you. Oh, the food industry is, uh, has done a fantastic job at, uh, at making profits. And, and you've got to remember that that's, that's the only thing they're interested in. They're not interested in the health of, uh, of, of the standard person. They just want to make money for, for their shareholders. So you can't expect them to, you know, to self-regulate or be responsible. They're just out to make money. And what they've realised is that people love sweetness and uh, they, every new food that comes on the market, they, increase the, they, they have these tasters and the, uh, they increase the amount of sugar and, and salt in the food until they get to the bliss point. You know, which is the point of maximum uh, satisfaction from the, the amount of sugar, and that's the amount that they want to have in the uh, in the food. And uh, mm. it's amazing once you uh, you know we're all addicted to sweetness, and the food industry has made us addicted to sweetness. 
Uh, we expect foods to be sweet and foods, you know, even, even the fruit that's been um, engineered and, and, and so on is now much sweeter than it used to be. And uh, it's amazing what happens when you stop eating sugar and, and, and processed foods and so on and that your, your taste buds quite change quite quickly and uh, what seemed to be normal before tastes incredibly sweet. So you can actually sort of decondition yourself away from that, uh, that sweetness. And, uh, and they know that, that sugar is addictive. And, um, you know, I think a large proportion of the population are actually physically addicted to, uh, to sugar. And uh, that's a huge mm. issue. And there's a great book by um, Vera... Thurman, I think it is, I'll put the link in the show notes, and she talks about um, food junkies. And in her book, she talks about um, the food addiction cycle and particularly about the, um, about the role of sugar in, in that sort of addictive cycle. I was also going to sort of, I was pointing to Jackie because um, obviously having been low carb for, for quite some time, you know, the thing about 95% chocolate is that it tastes, it still has a sweet, sweet point um, or lower, lower ones, you know, whether it's 80% or if you go to a 75%, it's like, wow, you know, this is, this is still sweet. So yeah, when you, when you get to 90, 95%, I think you reach that sort of level of, you know, the, the tartness that comes with a bitter bit of, um, of, of dark chocolate. So it yeah, certainly does change your taste. My, but dark chocolate is one of my treats, I must admit. I do like a little, uh, little bit of dark chocolate at, uh, in, in the evening with a, uh, a cup of tea or a cup of coffee <laughs> after, uh, after dinner. That's uh, one of my indulgences. But, uh, yeah, we've all got to have our little, little weaknesses. Yeah. Mine yeah, too. Someone, yeah, absolutely. After dinner, but eighty-five is about as high as I can go. Oh, really? Yeah, same here. Eighty-five yeah, I'm not with a 90, yeah, I agree. No, eighty-five too much. Eighty-five with lots of cream. Yeah, not on its own is I can do it, but it's not as enjoyable as with cream. Sounds good. Yeah, even peanut butter. But that was my yeah. my thing while I was in the UK was actually to get the Rhoda's clotted cream and melt uh, two squares of like a ninety percent lint, like a lint dark chocolate, and then you fold the clotted cream through that, and it makes the most delicious, mm. luscious chocolate mousse. In and that that was my that was my treat. So um, yeah, so I'm certainly missing missing having access to to clotted cream, and even you know the the double cream was was delicious as well i mean that was at least what 50 percent um fat content as well so um yeah i think there was a there was a question that i was thinking of when you sort of said about medicine not really taking on new ideas i found that really quite surprising because i thought like in terms of medicine research medical research you know everybody right now is researching for a vaccine for coronavirus um, I'm thinking about all those medical scientists behind meds, you know, our medical practitioners that embrace new technologies. When you think about, you mentioned about arthroscopies, all that new technology. So doctors sometimes aren't resistive of new ideas, but maybe it's only just some ideas that they're resistive of. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think technology and, and drugs and so on, that, that's sort of in their comfort zone sort of thing, but uh, things like nutrition and exercise is way out of, uh, and, and doctors don't understand it. And so, you know, they, they push back against it because, you know, the average doctor, you know, knows nothing about nutrition, as I mentioned before. So just slavishly follows the guidelines, you know, the dietary guidelines, and, the, and they assume that they must be correct. And the, the problem is that the, some of those guidelines are, uh, are way off the beam. So, um, so it, yeah, it, it's, I guess what I meant more when I was saying that doctors are to new ideas to, is to sort of, I guess, 
totally new concepts and so on, which uh, rather than just new drugs and uh, obviously the vast majority of, uh, of medical research goes on, uh, on drugs because it's funded by the pharmaceutical industry. You know, part of the problem with, uh, with what we're doing with improving diet is it's very hard to get funding for research to prove that these things work because, uh, you know, research is, is basically funded by the pharmaceutical industry, which is obviously not going to support that or by governments, and uh, they're not going to support research that goes against the dietary guidelines. So we've got a real issue in, uh, in the sort of healthy nutrition space about funding for research to prove that, that you know, uh, real food is actually the way to go. Hmm. And we, we have seen, we have seen obviously light research that has proven the efficacy of a low-carbohydrate approach, obviously with the Virtus studies, so which was obviously not funded by a drug company but was funded, you know, privately, but was a well-studied, well well-designed studied. So there, there is obviously, you know, publications out there. Yeah, there is some evidence out there, but... But absence of really good randomised control trials, and uh, which are incredibly expensive and difficult to do. The criticism of Verda, Verda's done a fantastic job, but the criticism is that they're a, they're a commercial organisation, so they they obviously have a vested interest in in the research. I mean, I I absolutely believe in what they're doing. I think they're doing a fantastic job. But uh, the sceptics, you know, will say that there's not a true randomised uh, control trial. Right. So. Um, mm. That, that's a bit of a problem in our in our area that we don't have the funding to do those. Uh, the, and and it is good quality nutrition research is very difficult to do. You know you've got to isolate specific uh, uh, nutrients or uh, and and you know make everything else equal. You've almost got to have people in a in a metabolic ward for for months on end uh, to do any effective uh, research, which is obviously very very difficult to do. But you know I, I think maybe the, the you know, we've got to accept a lesser quality of uh, of research and more on the basis of anecdotal experience. And there's so much of it now. There are so many people out there who benefited so much from this low-carb approach that really, you know, it can't be just coincidence. And uh, there are literally thousands and thousands of people on uh, on forums, on, uh, on, on, on blogs, on all sorts of, uh, on Twitter and so on, who uh, have had, you know, incredible personal success with uh, with the low carb approach. So, you know, I for me, I'm comfortable that there are, that there is enough evidence. But, you know, uh, I'd love uh, some really good hard scientific evidence to convince some of my somewhat sceptical medical colleagues. Mm. You were saying about the the metabolic ward because that's really what um, you know Finney and Volick, you know, obviously the pioneers of the the low carbohydrate approach, you know, used to do. They used to take their cyclists and put them into the metabolic ward and have them there for four weeks and control every aspect of their their diet and their exercise and that sort of stuff. And you're right. I mean, it is very expensive and very intense to be able to control every aspect. Yeah, and we're probably never going to get huge, you know, large-scale research on that on that uh, on that basis. But you know, I, I feel very comfortable that there is sufficient evidence out there to uh, to support what uh, what we're doing. I mean, you know, I I, I couldn't, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be comfortable otherwise if there if there wasn't. You know, you can't just go on personal experience of, of you know. Uh, but I think there's plenty of evidence out there. And, uh, you know, both, as you said, there's the Verda group, there's, uh, there's the UK group, David Unwin's group in, in the UK have uh, published some good stuff. There's just a recent study about a community-based uh, low-carb program in the US that had very good results. So, you know, there, there's plenty of stuff out there. And as I said, the, the main thing is just your patients. You know, your patients tell you it works. And uh, there's so many people whose, you know, lives have changed, you know, with, uh, 
with with changing their diet. I, I and not not just in in you know the obvious things like obesity and and, and diabetes, but uh, things like mental health and so on. I had had a uh, had a girl come up to me in the in the coffee queue uh, recently and and at university and and she said, oh, Dr. Brookner, and I said, yeah, and she said, oh, I, I enjoyed your lecture the other day. I said, oh, that's good. And she said, oh, but that's not what I want to talk to you about. And I thought, oh, God, you know, here we go. What have I done uh, done here? And she said, my husband and I are, uh, are mad cricket fans, and back in 2014 we changed our diet because of, uh, because of you. And uh, my husband's been uh, bipolar all his life, and uh, he's now off all his medication, and you've changed our lives, and I just want to say thank you. Wow. And I thought, whoa, gee, you know, that uh, that was powerful. And, you know, that's, that's not an isolated case. Uh, so... You know, I think it's really exciting. Uh, some of the areas uh, like mental health, uh, you know, there's some good evidence out there that there's uh, Felice Jacker in uh, at Deakin University here in, in Australia has done some really exciting work on, on the effect of diet in the management of depression and anxiety and had results comparable to any uh, antidepressant medication just as, a, as effective. I think in, uh, in cancer, there's some really interesting work being done uh, with low carb as an adjunct to, uh, to regular cancer treatment. And then in... Uh, in the you know neurological diseases, I mean, we've known for for eighty years that uh, that epilepsy is uh, epilepsy. is managed very mm-hmm. well by a low carb diet. But um, you know, the, the amazing thing is, you know, we've known that all along, and the medical profession accepts that. And yet, no one ever sort of thought, well, maybe if it works for epilepsy, it might work for some other neurological disease. So yeah, it's it's amazing how how close we are in our thinking. So things like Parkinson's disease and multiple sclerosis and even Alzheimer's. You know, seem to respond very well to uh, to low carb, healthy fat diets. So, it, I think it's a really exciting uh, time over the next few years. We find out more and more about the benefits of uh, of this nutritional approach to medicine. Yeah, and I think we're going to see it more because, like ourselves, we've just come into it naturally, and we're seeing a, a huge surge in people taking their their own journey into their own hands. Mm, so we're going to yeah. see we're going to see that influence more over time. Yeah, exciting times, I think. You know, it's really, uh, you know, sometimes I get, you know, you get a bit disillusioned because you feel as though you're bashing your head against a brick wall and then and then you have a patient come and say, you know, you've changed your life and, and so on. So uh, that, you know, inspires you that uh, to know that you're on the right track. Yeah. So, Peter, how can people get in contact with you if they choose to do so? Oh, well, I'm very happy to be uh, to be emailed, just uh, peter at sugarbyhalf.com. I have uh, a couple of websites, uh, fatlotofgood.com, it's my, all my diet and nutrition um, stuff. And then uh, I've got peterbrookner.com, which talks more about my sports medicine uh, uh, career. But um, uh, Twitter, at Peter Bruckner, um, Facebook, uh, yep, I'm pretty easy to contact. Very happy to hear from anyone. Great. We'll put all those links in the show notes. And yeah, well, in the show notes, in the show notes, we'll put um, links to your book. Um, so that was obviously at the website and um, Sugar by Half as well. So we can't obviously encourage enough. Um, obviously, the advocacy that that particular group is um, is is doing. So what we like to do at the end um, of our podcast is to ask our um, guest, obviously, if there's any top tips um, or three top tips for anyone starting out um, with a low-carb keto approach. Okay. Well, my top tips are, number one, JERF, J-E-R-F, just eat real food. And that just sort of covers pretty much everything. It, uh, you know, Processed food is, is the problem. So just get yourself off processed food and go back to eating the way that our our ancestors used to eat, our grandparents and so on, just eat, eat real food. 
that's probably the most uh, important thing. Number two, I guess I have a real issue with uh, the use of vegetable oils. I think we should uh, avoid cooking with vegetable oils when we heat vegetable oils. Uh, and they're not vegetable oils at all. They're seed oils, but, you know, they've called them vegetable oils because that sounds uh, healthier. But uh, they're, when they're heated, they become oxidised and they give off a lot of uh, toxic substances. So I think we need to go back to cooking in particular with uh, the way that our, our grandparents used to cook, you know, with butter or with uh, lard or with beef tallow or uh, even coconut oil or olive oil. They're the things we should be cooking with, not the sort of uh, polyunsaturated omega-6 oils, you know, your canola and uh, um, safflower and soybean and, uh, and so on. I think they're a, they're a, real, uh, a real issue. And uh, uh, third one, well, what can I uh, say? There are so many, uh, so many things. I think the third one I would say is that if you do have type 2 diabetes or metabolic syndrome or hypertension, there is a real chance of you actually being able to reverse your condition. You're probably told by your doctor that, oh, sorry, Mrs. Jones, you've got type 2 diabetes. You know, what can I do about it, doctor? Nothing, Mrs. Jones. You've got it for life. I'll just give you some drugs. Not true. You know, I think David Armon and others have shown that type 2 diabetes is a reversible disease and uh, with appropriate dietary changes, you can actually reverse that. And that, you know, that is so exciting that we've got an option now. And, and David Armon talks a lot about hope and we've given doctors hope that they can treat one of the most common conditions that they see. And we've given patients hope that it's not a lifetime sentence of type 2 diabetes. It's, it's actually an opportunity to reverse that uh, that disease with a low carb diet, mm. yeah, and we're we're seeing that all the time with people that we come in contact with, aren't we? It's so exciting. I mean, I, you know, I think it's one of the biggest breakthroughs. You know, if we had a drug that did that, it would be you know front page of the newspaper. It'd be the greatest discovery of all time. But the fact that it's diet, you know, people don't want to know about it because there's no money in it. Yeah, definitely. But that was the thing about David Unwin was obviously, you know, the de-prescribing as, as he's done and he saves mm. the NHS, um, obviously in the UK, you know, these tens of thousands of pounds and he's obviously a champion, an innovator and mm. recognised as an innovator, but obviously it's not, um, on the one hand, it's saving the, the national healthcare system, you know, loads of loads of money, but then obviously it's not, generating or returning returning funds to the shareholders so for the for that's the right and, and you know it's very difficult to counter the influence of the pharmaceutical and food industries you know they're immensely uh, wealthy powerful, powerful industries who have a vested mm -hmm. interest in maintaining the status quo so of course they don't want mm -hmm. uh, they don't want low-carb nutrition to be uh, to become popular mm -hmm. so peter thank you very much for joining us it's been fabulous talking to you and thank you for talking to us so late in your evening yeah, my pleasure. I've enjoyed every minute. Thank you. That's great. Thank you. Well, Jackie, I know that I really enjoyed interviewing my fellow Aussie <laughs> friend, um, Dr. Peter Bruckner, and um, I know that you've actually listened to his podcast. Yes, I mean, it's very sports. I listened to the first two episodes. It's very sports-focused, uh, and so I think it'd be great for anybody that's really interested in particularly in the beginning I think they were talking about football and being at Liverpool so any Liverpool fans will probably really enjoy that 
And again, like our previous interviewee, Dr. Chris Barclay, it's really encouraging to sort of be able to get a sense that there are some enlightened um, medical practitioners out there that are really willing to, to challenge their own practice and through their own lived experience to, to be able to move towards a different way of eating as well. Mm. And that was obviously encouraging that he had his own sort of sense of how eating a different way, um, low carbohydrate, was able to improve his health. Yeah. And and I think it's, you know, when doctors look at, he said when he looked at Professor Tim Noakes, he said, "What you know, what you're doing, you're mad. But actually he recognised that the madness wasn't so mad after all. But that was really good because obviously, you know, they're colleagues, you know, in terms of the sports, the sports medicine and the sports science. So he obviously had some sort of collegial credibility to him to be able to take that on board. So we remember from Chris Barclay's um, interview that it was a patient that came to him and with the, the book that obviously changed and challenged his way, his thinking. And now it's really encouraging that Peter is obviously not only using that still in his, his medical practice, his sports science practice, but is taking this on board for at a national level, um, so the Australian national level with his, his not-for-profit, um, the Sugar by Half campaign. So as an influencer and as one of the, um, the leading lights, certainly in the Australian landscape for public health, um, you know, campaigning for change. Yeah, and we've just got to keep shouting about it keep shouting all the time mm. yeah and it was actually really good obviously at the phc conference where you know along with dr peter bruckner and we had um Masi, Mahatra, you know that we do actually have these champions and um, dr yeah, david Unwin. Yeah. so we could sort of we could always <laughs> we could be here for for a while naming all the all the leading all lights the, yeah there's lots and lots of doctors and there's probably not enough but I'm sure each day more and more are coming on board or, you know, being open. It doesn't have to, you don't have to come on board. It's just about being open to to different ways and not one way fits all. So different people need different approaches. So where can we get the show notes for Peter's episode? You can find the show notes at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero one two. Hey Jackie, you know when you were starting out with keto, you probably had loads of questions. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Don't you wish you just had someone who was able to give you just the simple answers to all those questions about macros, electrolytes, reading nutrition labels and sweetness? Absolutely, yeah. Well, we want to have an episode where you, dear listener, can AMA, which stands for Ask Me Anything. You'll be able to ask us anything using a Fabulously Keto webpage where there is a contact form and you could submit your questions, which we will answer on these episodes. The contact page is fabulouslyketo.com forward slash AMA. Whether you're just starting out or experienced in your journey, we will happily answer your questions. You don't have to be new to keto, so if you're further along in your journey and have questions on being stuck on a plateau or a stall, then feel free to submit your questions as well. Just head over to www.fabulouslyketo.com forward slash AMA.
It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Follow us on social media. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto One. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know that you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto One and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication. Music